Welcome to the Climate Capital Podcast, where we interview founders who are solving the most difficult and important decarbonization problems. Climate Capital, across our funds and our syndicate, is one of the most active funders of early stage climate tech globally. This episode is led by me, Vijay Rajendran, of Climate Capital Syndicate, where I'm an investor. Today, we're interviewing Zach Stein, founder of Carbon Collective. Zach is the co-founder and CEO of Carbon Collective, a startup creating sustainable 401k retirement accounts, an area that is underserved by the traditional retirement services and asset management industry. Previously, Zach was the CEO and co-founder of Osmo Systems, an agrotech startup offering all-in-one monitoring and control systems to hydroponic and aquaculture farmers at a price they can actually afford. Full disclosure, Clem Capital is an investor in Carbon Collective. CC Pod is not investment advice and is intended for informational and entertainment purposes only. Zach, welcome. It's great to have you here today. So glad to be here. Zach, tell us, where are you located? And tell us a little bit about where you grew up. I am located in the Bay Area. I also grew up here. I currently live in Albany, which is a little town right next to Berkeley. Um, and I grew up on the peninsula right next to Stanford. Amazing. Zach, tell us, how do you introduce yourself to people at parties? This is honestly a question I really struggle with, where I'm like, do I say I'm a startup founder? The way I've been doing it recently and still very much a work in progress, is saying that I run a small investment firm that focuses on helping businesses um, provide sustainable retirement accounts to their employees. That seems like a pretty uh, clear explanation. Zach, tell us the origin story here. How did uh, you get started? Tell us how you met your um, your co-founding team uh, and you know how you decided to work on building this company. Great question. So I very much believe in the phrase, I heard it once, I don't know where the quote is, but life is only linear in the rear view mirror. So <laughs> if, <laughs> yeah, it's just very accurate for my kind of quote, unquote professional post-college career. So James, my co-founder and I, we have actually known each other since we were four years old. Our dads met at Stanford together. And so we were, you know, friends as kids. And this is the second company that we founded together. Previously, we founded, as you mentioned in the intro, Osmo Systems, focused on a different part of sustainability, saying, how can we help a dirty industry, particularly uh, land-based aquaculture, get a lot cleaner by uh, operating in a lot more efficiency? It was a really interesting problem, a very hard technical problem with a large and ready to adopt market. Um, we couldn't get the tech over the finish line. And so, but a great partnership is not something that you ever want to waste. And so James and I, at the end of 2019, and really the beginning of 2020, we, we didn't know that a pandemic was coming, um, set out to ask the question, how can we build better tools to enable individuals to collectivize their climate action? Big question. Yeah. And we went through a broad exploration of what that could be. We ended up conducting 120 in-depth interviews in and around our network, trying to understand what actions people were taking and where they were getting stuck. And what we found again and again is people kept saying, I've looked at my investments. I'm in this ESG fund. I don't really understand why these companies are in here. I don't get the theory of change. I don't get this, how this uh, uh, is actually more right. sustainable than the alternate option. 
And so I think we were somewhat early mm-hmm. to a, a criticism from the left, you know, we've heard a lot from the right, um, yeah. of saying that ESG as a framework, as an investing framework, doesn't actually necessarily fit what people are looking for for sustainable investing. And so that's what ended up pushing, pushing us down this path of uh, building a, a fintech and financial services company. And, and for those shortcomings, like ESG is by no means small. Like it's, it's despite being, um, you know, as, as problematic as you described, it has, you know, come to capture a lot of assets, right? Yes, it has $2.7 trillion in assets globally currently. And I don't want to knock ESG. I, I think that it is actually a victim of its own success. And to use a kind of like classic VC term mm-hmm. that uh, we are in the process, we believe, of the unbundling of ESG. You know, we've seen this with previous things like the unbundling of Craigslist as a famous example, or the unbundling of the spreadsheet where, you know, you had spreadsheets were in- invented to make manual computation much easier and do it in an automated fashion. That was right. the use case. But people ended up saying like, whoa, I could use this to store my business contacts. Mm-hmm. Never invented for that. That's where you had the unbundling and you have things like CRMs come out of that sh- indication of that demand. ESG was invented as a way for hedge funds, really, to diversify across new classes of risk that wasn't captured on a balance sheet. What is the environmental risk, the water risk, the carbon risk of a given company, the social risk, the governance risk, which boards are being well managed and not? Having that additional data, you could build a theory that you would be able to generate long-term alpha uh, with that and including that in an investment portfolio. Its big innovation was for the first time quantifying that data and saying, we're going to measure all these different metrics and quantify it. And that led to a bunch of other use cases glomming onto it of saying sustainable investors of saying, ooh, we can quantify this. Impact investors, ooh, we can quantify this. Values aligned investors, we can quantify that. But it was never actually intended for that. And so that's what we believe we're actually a part of now is that unbundling of what it was never intended for in the first place and building products that actually have product market fit with what those different use cases are looking for. So you're unbundling ESG. Why did you start with 401ks? What's so special about that particular part of it? We didn't is the answer. We actually were pulled into it. Um, When we launched in November of 2020, uh, we started just by working with individuals and their retirement accounts. And we still do. Uh, we have about 800 uh, households and families that we serve, um, helping them kind of manage their retirements in a way that uh, makes sense for the goal of retirement while aligning with that goal of retiring in a climate stable world or a world that's on a pathway to it. What kept happening, though, is we kept having people join and say, hey, this is great. But like where I really need help is at my company. I work for this climate nonprofit or this uh, uh, startup um, or a green business. And our 401k currently forces us to invest in fossil fuels and all these things that go counter to that mission. And as we looked more and more into it, we saw, wow, there is a lot of room for improvement in this industry. And I think as many of your listeners will appreciate, especially in this environment, it's just a lot easier and makes a lot more sense to scale a business and especially a fintech business in B2B rather than B2C because in financial services, scale is everything. And so we were kind of looking at like, what's going to be our pathway there? Because once you have scale, you can do a lot, but you need to be really efficient getting there. Amazing. Uh, What surprises 
people uh, when they they start using uh, you know this retirement uh, account service uh, to design you know the the right type of environmentally uh, compatible uh, portfolio versus you know what they may have been used to historically from uh, you know ETFs and index funds and things like that. Yeah, I think one of the biggest things we get, and you know, sometimes we have to explain this multiple times, is we are a co-fiduciary when we come on and work with the plan. So we are equally on the hook legally as the company is for its 401k. And it's a very litigious space. And so what we uh, have found is that people naturally assume, based upon our name and stuff like that, that we, you know, the only options we offer are climate ones or green ones or ESG ones. And we actually do the opposite. We say, it's very important to offer the same index funds or the same access to that. You still have to do the best in class ones. You have to have the best performing S&P 500 fund in there. But it's so important to offer that. And what we our goal is on the portfolios front is to make sure that we're giving the participants in a company uh, access to a clear series of distinct investment philosophies where each of them would have, you can make a strong argument of why you would believe this would outperform in the long term. We're not trying to dictate which one we think will outperform over the long term. So passive investing, which is you know what a lot of us are used to in a 401k, just invest with the total market, is a really important investment philosophy. We never want to take anyone's ability to invest away from that. We also include ESG, and then we also include climate, where for that investment philosophy, the long-term argument you would make is that Passive uh, uh, strategies or investment philosophies or ESG strategies do not properly account for the level of climate risk in the financial space um, and the types of opportunities that exist. And so having a more climate-focused strategy would lead to superior results if you believe in things like we're going to hit peak fossil fuels by the end of the decade um, in pieces like that. So we make it really clear when we do our onboarding, we're never here to tell someone how to invest. We're not trying to put our thumb on the scale for it. We just want to give people access to curated options that all make sense for that goal across a range of investment philosophies. And that's pretty novel in this space. When you think about these different philosophies, do those philosophies also include um, ideas of of impact? uh, Or is that something that doesn't have a place in retirement accounts? So this is what's pretty up for debate right now in the Department of Labor and kind of if anyone has followed along with what's going on legally, where things have landed currently, and we think this makes a lot of sense, is that your primary job is to make sure you're providing the best in class funds in a given investment philosophy. And th- th- what is best in class means? It's performance. It's not necessarily fees. You can have a low, very low uh, fee fund that's not performing as well. Right. So you're taking that balance, you're looking at the one year, the three year, the five year, the 10 year, and you're you're updating that regularly and looking at it, because as that fiduciary, it is the most paternalistic financial relationship in the US between a company and their participants, it's the company's job to provide a curated list of options uh, to their employees. So that's how we approach it. And legally, you can use and this is explicit in kind of more updated Biden commentary uh, from it, is that if you have basically a tie where you're like, all right, well, this this one fund that isn't ESG or this one fund that uh, uh, the, these two 
asset classes, these two S&P 500 funds, um, have a similar level of performance, then you can use other factors like ESG or impact. But the word impact in particular is something that we do seek to avoid from this because that often can get seen as the primary reason of investing, uh, where the primary reason is going to be performance in this space, where impact could be a secondary or a tertiary goal. But it always has to be performance has to be the primary. That's good to understand because often in the language of impact investing, those investments are described as concessionary or you know lower than uh, the the performance you would have otherwise. Exactly, and that is something that kind of when people ask me, what is the potential impact of Carbon Collective? One of the greatest impacts I think we can have is something I don't think we'll ever be able to quantify, which is it's exactly that narrative. That right now, when I say the words sustainable investing, you probably in your gut somewhere assume that it means concessionary, that you're giving up potential returns. And when I say like, do you want to own ExxonMobil? You're like, well, they, I hate them, but like I, they're going to make me a lot of money over the long run. And that's the narrative that we need to combat because it is a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, the stock market has these kind of broad undercurrents of like what most investors believe that ends up affecting share price pretty significantly. And when we look at what's happening for fossil fuels right now as an industry, they've just never faced a threat like this before um, to all of their main sectors of business, whether that be electricity or transportation. And so that's what's on the horizon. And the faster that we can get investors writ large to see, wow, this is ultimately a shrinking pie. And I need to choose the right time to exit it. Um, sure, there's going to be profits to made, make as it shrinks. Um, that's the narrative we need to push. And the broader that that comes out, and the more that this is seen as uh, uh, in, uh, incorporating climate, this secular trend of climate into your investing strategy, um, makes sense, then the faster it'll actually go. Yeah, and I think that's something surprising or shocking about the status quo we live in now that most people uh, don't understand. Uh, it, it is possible to imagine, although it's difficult for most people, that you know those those fossil fuel companies are going to be you know tomorrow's version of you know landline telephones or newspapers or something else that is uh, changed and disrupted by new technologies and uh, you know new lifestyles and and uh, economic changes. Yeah, it's. Um something that bill gates said recently that i've been thinking a lot about which is the set at cop uh which is the green premium where we're only going to be able to solve climate change when the green premium is basically zero or negative where in order to choose the fossil fuel free option you're not going to pay anymore you're actually going to pay less within that and we're seeing that in some sectors certainly um with you know solar uh, in particular, in variable electricity. Soon, we're probably going to see it in the solar and battery combination. And that's going to be a really big deal for natural gas producers, for coal producing companies. And we're not quite there with EVs. And we're definitely seeing some road bumps in the adoption of e EVs right now. Um, but it's coming because it's fundamentally a superior technology that there's no reason why it can't be significantly cheaper than an internal combustion engine. It's just the internal combustion engine uh, entire marketplace and ecosystem has had nine decades, 10 decades to build up. <laughs> and yes. so it's just way ahead. 
Um, in the same way that the natural gas industry has had five decades to build up, whereas we're seeing kind of solar has really had a decade when it's been at scale, same with wind and batteries have had like five years. So especially when we're comparing these things on economic fronts, we're seeing rapid, rapid shifts in this type of bet of saying that over time, given all of the work we're seeing upstream and the investors are putting in, it's all going into uh, companies that can eliminate or go negative on the green premium. And that's why kind of the long-term pitch of why you would make this style of investing, of investing into climate opportunities, it's purely a, uh, it is to make uh, a long-term outperformance because of that. Uh, I, I think that's a, a very powerful takeaway and, and useful for people listening to, you know, keep in, in the back of their mind of, of what's, uh, you know, happening at, at the macro level. Uh, zooming in from the macro to the micro and thinking about you know, your journey as a founder and your your startup's evolution, um, can you tell us a story of you know, a major problem or crisis uh, that the company is faced and and what you learned from it? Yeah, I, it's countless. The one that I think most jumps to mind and is the most prescient was us having to do a really big mindset shift into this the new world of fundraising where the days of cheap capital are just over and the days of how you would manage a company and grow 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 and just know you're going to be able to get what you need later um, are really over and i think it's really healthy it's been really healthy for us as a business to have to go through and look and prioritize with that um about Almost a year ago, we went out to fundraise, and it was one of the worst macro moments in the market to go and raise. And we ended up not getting very much. And that was personally like an incredibly hard time for me. And I was just completely drained from that experience of just rejection after rejection. Um, but I'm really grateful to it because it forced us to focus as a company. And it really forced us to focus on what was working the most, which was our 401k platform. And in doing that, we are now on track that um, we had $5 million in 401k AUM in December of 2022. And I think we're on track for the end of the year to have $55 million in 401k AUM with zero marketing spent. Amazing. By the wow. end of this year. A, a, a 10x increase. Uh, yeah, el el 11, in fact. 11, yeah. <laughs> um, and so that's that's the type of thing that I, I think that um, what it, it is focused to like stop and, and remove these kind of like magic goggles that for some reason tech startups are just different than other types of businesses. Say, so no, the same fundamentals apply here. And I, I'm really grateful. I, I think we're a lot closer to uh, where we need to be because of it. And as I alluded to earlier, scale is just the name of the game in our industry. Once you have scale, you can do a lot from it. But until you have scale, you're pretty limited. And if we hadn't had that experience, I don't think we would have necessarily been able to zero in on of like, this is our pathway up the mountain to scale. That's remarkable. As you live through that, uh, with Carbon Collective and what it means to scale, did you experience any personal growth from that? I think I have one of the coolest jobs in the world. And I'm like a learning growth 
junkie. I don't know. That makes that sounds weird to say, but I, I, it's true. <laughs> and so I'm just I am never bored. Um, I you know get to look back and say, oh, this is where we this is where we were. This is where we are. Um, and it's been really fascinating as we've scaled the 401k service to kind of see, start really clearly identifying of not just how can we add sustainable portfolios and those options, but how can we just give you a fundamentally better 401k experience and do so in a really scalable way? I know that's like about the business and not necessarily personal growth, um, that has been really, really satisfying, especially as someone coming outside of the finance industry into this, where there's a lot of disadvantages in that. It's harder to get taken seriously when you're like, well, I, I don't have 20 years of Wall Street experience. But it also means that we came in with a blank page. And so we could see what was working and what wasn't, I think, in a way that a lot of others haven't been able to. Uh, and can't. And I think that's given us a huge advantage um, to not just build something that makes, you know, a uh, company's 401k have the option of being a lot greener, but actually just pr- help protect the company uh, to a much greater extent from what is can be a pretty risky activity of, you know, managing your employees' retirement savings. So that's been really satisfying to continue to uh, be an outsider in this industry, but actually feel like I, I think we're really pushing it forward. Yeah, in, in some ways, that's kind of controversial. Like you're not someone who's um, come from the asset management industry, but then you can question why does this have to be the way it is um, in in terms of the way that financial products are created and distributed. Uh, and, and certainly you've um, rethought things um, when it comes to like rethinking things and whether it's in the shoes of uh, the um you know, the employers or, um, members, participants in the, um, in, in the re- retirement program, uh, in, in a 401k program, like what, what is controversial, uh, if that's the right word about, you know, what you do because it's, um, you know, a departure from the past because you bring this different perspective. I think kind of how the landscape, and we have pretty strong opinions on this, is that how the industry is saying we should introduce sustainable investing options into this space is saying, okay, Google, you have your, you know, Vanguard target date funds, the S&P 500, you have your passive lineup, all super low fee, uh, because, you know, you're a giant 401k plan, you can afford that, uh, or, or get that level of scale. Um, the way to start introducing sustainable investing is like saying, okay, let's find the right ESG US large cap fund and, right. and put that in there so people could have access to it. The problem with that, and this has been confirmed by multiple ERISA attorneys, which is that's kind of like the body of law that this operates under, is that it's actually you're being like a bad fiduciary from it because you're forcing people into a choice to choose between their head and their hearts of putting 100% of your 401k into US large cap stocks is risky. It's your you might unknowingly be taking on a lot more risk of volatility than you intend to. And this is especially for most people, you know, most em- employees at a company might not even know what U- US large cap stocks mean. And so that's part of the problem. Uh, in this. And, and that's why we take such a different approach of saying, it's our job to give apples to apples access in the different asset classes to a series of investment philosophies. So we include three different target date series 
in our 401k programs, a passive one, which would be like a Vanguard target date fund, and ESG one, following kind of ESG strategies with the theory that if you eliminate some of the worst of the worst ESG companies, that would lead to long-term uh, out competition. And then our climate-focused strategies. We don't try to tell anyone which to choose, but that way we're not having a participant need to have a certain level of financial knowledge to build an ESG or sustainable or climate-focused portfolio. They already get an automated one that's set up for them. And then for those you know, minority of participants that would want to go and do it themselves, they also have the access to that as well. Because the trend that we see is that uh, it's kind of like a sneaky ploy by very conservative uh, investment committees. And I use that in, in terms of risk-averse investment committees right. to say like, well, we put in this ESG fund and like only like 1% of assets are in it. So we're going to take it out because it's clearly not very popular. And that's because it's not an apples to apples. It's like you made your whole 401k, the S&P 500. So I, I think that is a somewhat controversial opinion that we have on the space, but that we feel very, uh, we stand very strongly behind it. I've actually been advising a bunch of nonprofits that are focused on sustainable 401ks and decarbonizing that part of corporate scope three in the 401k and pushing very strongly that um, adding a single ESG fund is actually can often be a step backwards versus a, a full series um, or, or a target date fund. That is very counterintuitive because I'm sure uh, most uh, committees feel that they just need to check this box. Like we, we, you know, we offer this, like, you know, uh, and uh, that uh, should be sufficient. Um, but yes, it, it, I'm, I'm sure you have to do a lot of educating. Exactly. Yeah. I, out of curiosity, with interest rates being higher uh, and, you know, some shift of, uh, of portfolios to fixed income, um, does that change people's long-term uh, investing decisions for retirement, which, you know, is, is usually pretty uh, far out into the future? It's a good question. It depends on kind of who you're talking to and where they're at in their journey. We, one of the kind of shifts that we've had is that uh, we're pretty big believers in general passive strategies when it comes to equities, when it comes to stocks, that uh, we don't believe that an active manager can, you know, year over year, five year over five years, outperform the uh, overall index or stock market. For our climate-focused portfolios, we just more narrowly define the universe of stocks you can invest in, but then apply, you know, a similar passive filter over it. Um, but where we've really shifted is that we don't think passive makes sense for fixed income, where it's it's a pretty inefficient market, unlike. Uh, equities. Right. And so having active management there makes a lot more sense where you'd also somewhat enable your manager to flex a lot more with where interest rates are going um, right now. O overall, uh, if you're like 30 years away from retirement or 20, it probably doesn't make sense to take any more fixed income, even given the high rates. Uh, right now, because you're going to be given the upside of the equities away. And so I think in general, stick with the plan. But if you are close to that investment goal, because we say this to our participants all the time, the most important question in investing is not what should I invest in or who should I invest with, or even like which investment philosophy should I adopt? 
Those are all secondary questions. The primary question in investing that has to come first is, when do I need the money? Because if you've answered that, then you can see what type of risk tolerance makes sense to to take on uh, and with that. So for those that need the money a lot sooner, yeah, that can make a lot more sense to uh, adopt and even in some ways lock in some of these higher interest rates. That's not exactly the type of services that we provide, like, you know, moving some of your money into a CD. Um, but I think it would, you know, for some, it can make a lot of sense. That's a great question. And one that in my years of uh, investing and uh, being in financial services, I have not heard asked very much because usually there's some generic question about, you know, would you be you know, upset or okay if your you know your portfolio went up or down ten percent versus thirty percent, you know, and and uh, th- those sort of um, very difficult to grok hypotheticals. Exactly, exactly, yeah. and just you know, for people that you know, like yourself or like me, we who have that experience, we might be in a position to answer that. Um, but for your average person, absolutely not. And I think this is one of kind of our other advantages of being outside of this space is we have to learn how to explain this without any jargon. We're Absolutely. not here to try to tell you, like to try to convince you we're so smart uh, because we actually, we don't have that background to be able to necessarily back that up in the way someone with 20 years of experience would be where they could say, well, I have this model that was formulated on all these firms and it's a multi-step process and yada, yada, yada. Uh, no, we actually have to explain it in such a simple and clear way that you get it. And you feel empowered to make the right choice for you. Yes, skip the Monte Carlo simulation. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, Sort of reflecting on what all this means and looking ahead uh, to, to the future, how does the world change if you succeed? So when we kind of told the story at the beginning, we told somewhat of that bottom up of just the demand for this pulled us into it. And we really saw it as our pathway to scaling or, or go, you know, climbing our way the mountain of, of scale. Uh, from a top-down perspective, the science on this is very clear. We cannot solve climate change in the timeline that we need to, or, you know, at least reach a net zero place where we can then start you know, really working on drawing down historic emissions, uh, if we do not significantly invest in it. The analysts' analyses vary, but we need to be investing somewhere between three and five trillion more dollars per year into climate solutions and stop investing in new fossil fuel expansion if we're going to, you know, have a chance of remaining below like two degrees of warming by 2050. That is kind of that high level. And there's a lot that feeds into that. There's giving access to it where you didn't have it historically. There's allowing you to kind of align your long-term goal of retirement with that long-term goal of a climate-stable world with, you know, obviously with only doing so in a way where you could believe that you would have outperformance or at least comparable performance from it. Um, And then there's that narrative perspective of, we believe that only a firm that is, fully climate focused and coming from this can represent the long-term alpha narrative in a way uh, of these types of strategies where kind of the incumbent financial firms, you, you know, say, well, climate is coming and then you have what happened to BlackRock where they get all this pushback and, you know, need to kind of double down on our fossil fuels are our friends and the important things. And so you're not going to have a narrative shifting. And ultimately that's what most needs to happen of uh, the, 
uh, as it becomes clear that the pie is shrinking in fossil fuels, and we're seeing a lot of early indications of that, like, we actually believe the uh, Exxon and Chevron acquisitions of uh, in, in the US shale oil fields are a pretty big sign that the companies are preparing for um, a contraction of fossil fuel demand in the long run. And so they're just looking to kind of capture more profitable wells, rather than drilling new ones and doing expansion, which could be a lot higher uh, risk, higher reward. So we, we do think that that is coming. Um, but the more that that can get pervaded, and then the more that we can push back on kind of, you know, what the OPEX and what these groups are, are trying to say, this is, this is here, we need it, it's fundamentally better. Um, that's going to be the, the biggest change. That's a really epic change. And that will be, uh, you know, something that will feel in all of our lives. Yeah. 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 May, may we get there. Yeah. <laughs> also reflecting on, you know, your experience, what's been the most helpful piece of advice you've received as a founder that you want to share with others listening to this podcast? One of the most helpful, this is actually something I was shown and not told, was just help. If you like someone and you believe in them as a fellow founder, just help. Open your network with no expectation of something in return. Um, and just the ways that that comes back to you and just giving into the ecosystem, it'll come back twofold. And you can never know how it'll come back, but the types of bonds built through that are really, really big. Um, and any time that you like try to make it a tit for tat, it, it's just not worth it. Um, so just, I, I think, approach, especially other founders, purely from a place of, yeah, like if, if I like you and believe in you, I'll do whatever I can to help. And especially in the climate space, we, we need that as much as possible. Absolutely. I, I think that's, that's very well said. Uh, what in, in general, uh, you know, what, what goes around comes around and doing good things, um, re returns many dividends. But when it comes to the climate, uh, we're, we're all on team planet Earth. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> exactly. And so, yeah, helping another like really cool climate tech startup, like evaluating their deck and making, you know, intros to 15 investors. Great, I'm there. Let's do this. I, I need you to succeed. On that note, when it comes to uh, succeeding, if someone in our audience is thinking, I would love to bring this solution into our organization and into my employer, where can they find out more about Carbon Collective and, and you know, begin that journey? Absolutely. Check out carboncollective.co or shoot us an email at 401k at carboncollective.co. We'd love to help. Again, in general, we tend to make 401k programs just a lot better for everyone involved. That's the you know executives and the investment committee, HR. Um, they really love us. We make their lives a lot easier. Uh, and the participants with our financial education and kind of that range of investment philosophies that we grant exposure to. Amazing. We'll have to leave it here. Zach, this was so much fun. I had a blast and you know, congratulations on all the success so far with Carbon Collective. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you to everyone for listening to our conversation with Zach about his journey with Carbon Collective. If you would like to learn more about Carbon Collective or get involved with the work Climate Capital is doing, you can check out our website, climatecapital.co. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time.